1: Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 703 with Jonathan Fields. He's got some excellent research and perspective on how to find the work that sparks you and makes you come alive. So you'll learn one, all about a free assessment that helps you figure that out. Two, the 10 impulses that describe what lights us up at work. And three, the fundamental questions that create career fit. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP703. Now here's Jonathan's story. Jonathan Fields hosts one of the top-right podcasts in the world called The Good Life Project, where he shares powerful stories, conversations, and resources on a mission to help listeners live more meaningful and inspired lives. Fields is also the founder and CEO of Spark Endeavors, a research initiative focused on helping individuals and organizations reclaim work as a source of purpose, energy, meaning, and possibility. His new book, Sparked, Discover your unique imprint for work that makes you come alive. It delivers an important message in time when many people are emerging for the pandemic and seeking out new work that will both challenge and fulfill them. Big thanks to Jonathan for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now, here's Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. And how do you awesome at your job? Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Cool. Well, well I'm so excited to dig into, into your wisdom here. And, and first, let's, let's talk, boy, with Good Life Project, you've been at it for a good long time. <laughs> so kudos, my hat's off to you. It's obvious. We have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you tell me about one or two of the most fascinatingly useful discoveries you've made along the way as you've hosted the podcast? There's one that I've been really
0: thinking on for a while now, and but it's not from a recent conversation. It's from a conversation that is probably six or seven years old. So we've been producing since 2012. And I had the opportunity to sit down with a guy named Milton Glaser. Milton died two years ago at the age of 91 on his birthday. Mm. He had a magical life. He was one of the most iconic designers in history. He A lot of people outside of the design world wouldn't know his name, but everybody actually knows at least some of his work. For example, the most ripped off logo in the history of iconography, iHeartNY, that was Milton. He sketched it out on a napkin in the back of a taxi in the 70s as a way to try and give something back to the city that he loved, which was then on the verge of bankruptcy and rally people to a place of hope and aspiration. And I sat down in conversation with him and as we were talking he shared with me that he knew what he was there to do since the age he was six which was to make things and i lit up because i thought to myself me too like that's i i've known from the earliest days i am obsessed with the process of creation i just see things that don't exist that need to exist all around me but then he dropped this other bit of wisdom further into the conversation and this is what i've been circling back to lately And he said to me, the impulse to make and the impulse to create beauty are related but not the same. And what I've realized later in life is that I'm not just driven by the impulse to make, to create, there's something around the impulse to create beauty, which is deeply compelling to me as well. So when I make something, I don't wanna just create something that's cool or interesting or different or valuable something inside me says, I want it to be beautiful. And granted, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but there's an impulse in me towards beauty, towards a creative process that births in some way, shape or form something where it moves people emotionally. There's an elegance to it. I don't often hit my metric for that aspiration, but I've realized that it actually matters to me on a level that's super important. And I've started to center it more in my work.
1: Yeah, well and, and I like that definition of of beauty then is so it need not necessarily be a visual aesthetic beauty, but uh, but let's say it again in terms of what it does. A beauty is beauty when it does what again? It's to me,
0: beauty is something that in some way, shape or form, it bypasses your cognitive processes, your filters and lands in a deeply emotional way and moves you. It evokes something in you. Now, granted, a lot of things can evoke something emotional in you, but it evokes a sense of awe Mm -hmm. in you. And it evokes a sense of wonder. It evokes a sense of appreciation and elegance. It just makes you feel good, like things are as they should be. Not everything in life, but for that moment, when you interact with whatever this thing is, you have that feeling. And to me, to be on the receiving end of that feeling is so powerful. It's why I've been a fan of art for my entire life, but also I've realized that I want to be on the creation end of that as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, sounds like a powerful conversation. That's really resonated for for quite some time. That's awesome. I want to hear about your book, Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive. That sounds fantastic. How does one go about doing just that?
0: Yeah. Well, there are probably a lot of contributors, um, you know, for probably my entire adult life. I've been fascinated with the question of how do we find and do work that gives us this feeling like we're doing the thing we're here to do. Like we're filled with meaning, a sense of purpose. We're excited and engaged to wake up in the morning and do this thing. We feel like our our fullest potential is being leveraged and we feel a bigger sense of purpose. And, and I started deepening into the question of whether there are some set of identifiable, mappable impulses for work or for effort that would give us this feeling? Could we tease them out from all the tens of thousands of jobs, roles, titles, and distill them down to a simple set of things, and then help people figure out what those are? Because if we could, then that would give a pretty important nugget of insight to somebody to help them understand what to say yes or no to, whether that's a project, a role, a position on a team, a job, an industry, an organization, and spend a lot more time in that state. I call it sparked or coming alive, rather than fumbling and wondering why they never have the feeling that they want to feel. So I spent a lot of time doing the research to map out these ten different impulses or imprints. I call them sparkotypes. And they are the source that then around them, we build entire archetypes. So there's an impulse for work. And then around each of these impulses, there are certain tendencies, preferences, and behaviors that are pretty common across a lot of different people. And then we built a tool to help us validate the research or invalidate it, thankfully it validated and then for people to use and interact with so they could discover theirs. And those are the Sparketypes and the Spark assessment. And that is now been completed by over 500,000 people generating over 25 million data points that have been just astonishingly insightful and helpful in helping people understand what to say yes and no to. And that became the source fuel for the book that has now uh, become Spark.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I would like to hear a bit of a rundown of the 10 different Spark types and and then like the core impulse and, and preference and behavior uh, that illuminates or exemplifies that spark a type. I suppose maybe before we get into into that, l- let's hear about the research and the validation, just because if someone's about to give me y- you name it, Myers Briggs, Enneagram, Big Five, Strengths Finder, any assessment, it's like if they say, hey, there's four key preferences or there's seven key types, it was like says who based on what and why, You're like my skeptic gets fired up. <laughs> so for for those in the audience before they uh, take your word for it that uh, these are, in fact, uh, a, a pretty good way to slice up the the universe of of uh, different flavors of of unique imprints that makes you come alive. Can you satisfy the skeptic and say what research and how do I know you didn't just make this up? As opposed to it has genuine validity as to what is in the hearts of of humanity.
0: Yeah, I love that question. So, a couple of things. One, don't take my word for it. Please don't take my right. word for it. Use your own experience to validate, whether it is the sparkotypes, whether it's any number of other tools or assessments that are out there right now. I agree with you. I think we always have to be guided by our own inner wisdom, by our own intelligence, like use a tool, see what it tells you, see if it lands as valid or not. You know, what we know is now that 500,000 people have done this and thousands more are doing it every day is we've done a follow-on study that showed us that 93% of the people who complete this tell us that it is anywhere from very to extremely accurate. But we've also gone beyond that. In that same study, we wanted to know, so first threshold is accuracy. Do people feel this is accurate? Now, the only way to actually know whether something like this is accurate, there's no objective measure. If I ask you, There's no objective measure of meaningfulness for every person on the planet. It's completely individual and subjective. So I've got to ask you, when you do this particular thing, does it give you the sense that it's meaningful to you, that it matters? And so we'll ask those questions. You're like: Do you have a sense of purpose when you're doing it? Are you able to easily lose yourself in a state of absorption where time seems to pass in the blink of an eye and you vanish into the experience? And when we ask these questions, what we actually find is really strong statistical correlation. So for people who are wrapped up in the data, the R value or the correlation coefficients between doing the work of your sparkotype and saying that you feel a sense of meaningfulness, that you are easily able to access flow, that you're excited and energized by your work, that you're able to access the fullest amount of your potential and perform at your highest level. And that you have a sense of purpose in life. They're really strong correlations that we see in the data. But again, I can give you numbers. I can give you R values. I can give you correlations. Why would you listen to me? We've got a tool that is out there and available in the form of an assessment. You can take it. One of the reasons that we actually have it publicly available for anyone to take for free is because I want you to actually interact with the tool yourself and see how valid it feels for you. So the skeptic in me, because I I have that same skeptic, I look at everything that comes out there and I'm like, well, how do I know that matters to me? So I also wanted to make sure that whatever we created was brought to market in a way where anyone could actually interact with the fundamental tool and get the basic wisdom from it and decide from their own whether it actually was valid for them or not without having to
1: actually invest anything beyond a, a little bit of their time. That's cool. Well, and, and just to just to triple confirm, because <laughs> I, I think we have had some guests who have had some really cool tools. But as a listener, if it's sort of like, I don't know if I'm going to spend 20, 30, 40 bucks on that, and this conversation is boring to me if I'm not. So we check, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, sometimes it doesn't go perfectly well, even though I've used the tool and think it's really cool. So that's awesome. So for the record, this is not a temporary book promotion. This is free for the world forever. Hooray. Is that what's up here? Yeah,
0: so this is not a marketing quiz that was put together for a marketing campaign. This has been, it took about a year to develop it through beta. We rolled it out publicly at the end of 2018. We've since continued to develop it and refine the algorithm. We rolled out a a 2.0 version of the assessment that added one particular metric to it. I believe it was earlier this year and the entire time it has been freely available to anybody.
1: Very cool. All right, well, so then... The benefits sound pretty pretty handy in terms of meaningfulness, uh flow, energy. So that's that's a nice lineup of of goodies that happen when when we're doing work that is in alignment with with the Sparkotype. Any other key benefits that you'd you'd highlight front and center for folks looking to be awesome with their jobs?
0: Yeah, there's something that I didn't see coming, which is so we tend to hear two things when people interact with the body of work. One is that there's something inside of them that feels validated. So very rarely do we hear someone say, oh, this was so surprising to me. I never knew or realized that. What we hear people say is there's something in me that has known that this impulse is in there. I have always felt this way about when I do this particular type of thing, it gives me this feeling. But for a variety of reasons, maybe I didn't think I could earn a living doing it. Maybe I didn't think I could figure out how to build a career. Or maybe I was socially told that it's not an appropriate pursuit for me, I've stepped away from it or I've stifled it. And what this does is it reflects back to someone, oh, this is real and this matters. So that's one thing. But there's a second thing that we've really started to see, which is that people start to realize that they're feeling seen on a level that they hadn't before that they feel like the language when we describe what these types are and how they tend to interact with people around them in the world they feel understood they feel seen and they now have language to then turn around and tell other people this is me like now you can see and understand me on a deeper level and that other person may be a partner in life it may be a family member or it may be a leader on a team or a teammate in the context of work but it helps them understand themselves feel seen by themselves to themselves and also give them language to help others see them more clearly.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Beautiful. Well, so, so lay it on us here. We got uh, 10 different spark types and we have like a key impulse or uh, call and then some preferences and behaviors that go with it. Could you maybe give us the 20 to 60 second rundown on each of the 10? Yeah, I am a maven if you wanted to start there, or maybe there's a sequence that, that makes good sense that you'd like to run through.
0: So the maven is actually a great starting place. The maven is the most process fulfilled of all of these impulses, all of these sparkotypes. The fundamental impulse for the maven is learning. It's all about knowledge acquisition. This can show up in a really narrow and deep way. So you may find a topic There, where you just, for some reason, you probably don't even understand why. Maybe it's 15th century history and something particular about it. And there's something about it that just fascinates you. And you have to know absolutely everything about it. And you will literally devote all of your energy. You'll spend money if you need to, to gain access to people or classes or resources to know everything you can about this one topic. It also shows up broadly on almost more of a trait level where you open your eyes in the morning And all you want to do is learn anything you can about everything and everyone. A friend of mine basically never takes a cab ride without knowing the entire life story of the person who is driving them. He's just absolutely fascinated by people, anybody, all walks of life and what their stories are. So the fundamental impulse there is knowledge acquisition. You may actually gain knowledge that is incredibly valuable to other people, but That's not actually why you do it. You do it simply because of the feeling that it gives you. So that's the maven. The maven also can get lost in a bit of a learning dark hole. So you can become so obsessed with learning something. And if it is a big, vast, complex, deep body of knowledge, then you can essentially just stop all of your relationships, stop exercising, stop eating well, and just completely devote yourself to the pursuit of knowledge. So there's a bit of a risk there to become obsessive about the quest for learning. Next up, we have what I call the maker. So the maker's fundamental impulse is creation. That also happens to be my impulse. I wake up in the morning and it's all about the process of creation. I look around and I'm like what can I make today? That has been my impulse for from the earliest days in my life when I was a kid I used to create pretty much anything that you could imagine creatable. I would cobble together old bike parts to create Franken bikes. I would draw album covers on jean jackets. I would renovate houses. As an adult, that's morphed into building companies, creating books, brands, experiences, media, anything that you can imagine. It's the process of creation that completely lights me up. Because the maker is also very process fulfilled, Similar to the maven, there's a risk of really losing yourself in the black hole of creation and ignoring all the other amazing things in your life by doing that. So next up, we have what I call the scientist. The fundamental impulse for the scientist is to figure things out. It's all about problem solving, figuring out pieces of the puzzle and burning questions. You wake up in the morning, you say, what can I figure out? this impulse tends to really be highly valued in industry there's literally a job called scientist or researcher where you can spend your entire life researching big broad complex deep questions one of the interesting quirks about the scientist is that you could devote say five years and figure out the answer to something maybe you figure out something in the context of medicine or cancer that has a profound impact on millions of people's lives You really like that, you appreciate it, you enjoy it. But the interesting thing about the scientist is it's not actually the reason you do it. The reason you do it is because of the feeling that it gives you, is because the quest for an answer makes you feel alive. So when you finally find that answer, as happy as you may be that you've discovered something incredibly valuable to others, it's not unusual for you to wake up the next day with a sense of melancholy, because now you're not waking up with a burning question anymore. And it becomes your job to go and find the next one. So behind that, we have the impulse that I would call the performer. Now, when you hear performer, a lot of people immediately think performing arts. Well, it's a singer, it's a dancer, it's a theater. And in fact, oftentimes that impulse does get channeled into those things because it's the logical place for it to go. But what we see in adulthood is this impulse, which is always to enliven, energize, and activate an experience or interaction or moment. This impulse is incredibly value in nearly any domain. You could exercise that in a meeting, in a boardroom, in a sales interaction, behind a bar, as a parent with children in local community organizing. It has really, really broad and amazing applicability. Behind the performer, we have what I call the essentialist. Now, the impulse for the essentialist is to create order out of chaos. You see complex things, you see mess, you see all sorts of chaotic things around you. And all you want to do is create clarity and utility from it. What we've discovered about this is that this tends to show up really early in life, also. The producer for our podcast, for Good Life Project, is actually an essentialist. And when she was a little kid, she used to line up her stuffed animals in height and order or or height and, and color in her bedroom. So this tends to show up really early in life and be praised because parents like when kids are orderly. Later in life, what you start to see is it is an indispensable trait because so many people who are not the essentialist, not only are not interested in doing that work, they outright loathe doing that work. So when they find somebody who is an essentialist, they will happily hand that work off to them And that essentialist very often in an organization becomes really quickly overloaded once they become discovered because everybody wants to give them that work and they're good at it and they like it. But at some point you have to create boundaries in the work. There's another interesting quirk around the essentialist, which is if you're really getting more nuanced, it goes beyond creating order, clarity, and utility. Essentialists tend to see a certain amount of elegance and beauty in order and clarity. And, and so there's almost an artistic aesthetic to the work that they do. After the essentialist, we have what I would call the warrior. Now, the fundamental impulse for the warrior is to gather, organize, and lead. And many people would look at that and say, well, leadership, sure, well, that's a skill. And I would say, yes, there are skills for leadership the same way that there are skills for all of these different impulses that I've talked about that we can acquire. But leadership in particular tends to be treated exclusively just as a set of skills that you can acquire. What we've seen is that, in fact, there is an underlying impulse that some people have. They wake up in the morning and all they want to do is bring people together and take them on an adventure, a journey from point A to point B. This often shows up early in life as a kid on the playground who's like, hey, everybody, let's go gather around. Let's go on an adventure in the woods or the team captain in school. It shows up in literally every domain of life. The warrior is a really, really powerful impulse. It can also be lonely. So you tend to be somebody who leads the way and you're not always the person where people want to step alongside of you and go with you. And sometimes bringing people together, especially a disparate group of people with different intentions, different personalities can be a really frenetic and chaotic social dynamic. So part of what you do is have to learn how to be really good managing social dynamics with people. So next after the warrior, we have what I would call the sage, the fundamental impulse of the sage is to awaken insight. It's about illumination. So you know something and all you want to do is tell other people what you know. You want to share it with them and seeing the lights of insight go on in their minds is the thing that is magical to you. So the maven devours information purely for the sake of knowing. The sage may also devour information, but for them, the impulse is not just to learn, it's to turn around and have something really powerful and new and valuable to share with other people. So next behind that, we have the advisor. The advisor is all about guiding others. It can be an individual, a group, team, an organization, through a process of growth. So they tend to walk alongside someone, whereas a warrior very often is one of the people that they organize and lead, they're among those. The advisor most often is somebody who is not within the group. They walk alongside that individual or group and they bring they create a container of, of safety and trust. And it's a very relational impulse. A big part of the reward for the advisor is the depth and quality and the sustained nature of the relationship that happens with other people as they guide them through a process of growth. It may not necessarily be, you know, I'm gonna get you from point A to point B, but it's some sort of evolutionary process that person or group goes through. And that leaves us with two remaining uh, sparkotypes. We have the advocate. So the fundamental impulse of the advocate is to champion it's to shine the light on an idea ideal individual or community and this isn't so much giving voice to other people because with individuals as a general i don't believe that you give anybody else voice you know you may give voice to nature or to an ecosystem or to animals but with other people it's generally it's championing them it is you see something that in some way shape or form lands with you as unfair, inequitable, unjust. And the impulse is I need to, in some way, shape or form, shine the light on what's going on here. I need to advocate for, or on behalf of, or alongside of, or with, so that we can create some sort of change. And the final impulse is what I call the nurturer. The nurturer is all about elevation. It's all about lifting others up. It's about giving care and taking care. The nurturer impulse, the person, and, and one of the primary tendencies around that is usually has a very strong sense of empathy. So that is the empath. That is the person who walks into a room and very likely feels other people's emotions, feels their states, feels other people's suffering, struggle, and pain. And they're compelled to do something about it. They move to that person and they will do anything they can to lift them up. One of the challenges of the nurturer is that they tend to feel so much of other people's experiences and emotions that it can leave them pretty empty and gutted themselves. So there's a deep need for self-care if you're one of those people. So those are the 10 different sparkotypes and the 10, on a very basic level, the fundamental impulses that drive them to actually take
1: action. Okay, and can we contrast the sage with the advisor? The sage shares the knowledge. They want folks to have the light of insight. And the advisor, Can you make that a clearer distinction for me?
0: Yeah. yeah. The sage basically says, I know something. I want you to know it. Mm -hmm. Once you know it, I'm out. Okay. The advisor says, I have ideas, frameworks, and experience. You want to move through some process and I'm going to walk alongside of you and be a sounding board, be a mentor, be a confidant as you move through this process. Mm -hmm. So it's less about, Hey, I'm going to tell you something really cool or valuable and then Mm -hmm. tap out. It's more about i'm going to walk alongside of you i'm going to be with you in a a relational way in a safe way and help you navigate this particular moment or experience or process
1: Mm -hmm. okay so to recap we got the maven all about knowledge acquisition we got the maker about creation the scientist about figuring things out the performer likes to sing dance or, or put it out there the essentialist finding order out of chaos the warrior gathering organizing leading folks the sage sharing knowledge the advisor mentoring alongside for the duration the advocate championing something and the the nurturer providing care and and so there we go there's there's 10 we did it <laughs> hooray and so the idea is when you're doing work that fits into one of those that is yours you are feeling that meaningfulness that flow that purpose that energy the the good stuff and when you're working On something that is not it you feel the opposite of that is that the shorthand there
0: yeah I mean fundamentally the more that you can align what you do with this basic impulse the more you have those feelings the more likely you are to access them and the more intense those feelings can become and the more sustained that they can become and the more what you do conflicts with those impulses the less likely you are to feel them you may still feel the glow of accomplishment You may still revel in a sense of camaraderie with people who you just really enjoy being around. So, you know, this is not the only thing that gives us a feeling that we want to feel in the context of work, but it's really important. You know, and I think a lot of us look at the external things and we say, let's look at culture, let's look at team dynamics, let's look at the motivational things, let's look at the carrot and the stick, let's look at leadership and growth opportunities. All of those things matter, but none of them, does a whole lot if the fundamental nature of what you do when you show up and spend your seven to 12 hours a day working is misaligned with the impulse for work that makes you come alive.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'd love to get your perspective in terms of once you, once you know this, what are some of the, the top things you recommend people do or not do in terms of like the, the kind of like, okay, I took the quiz. It was cool. I got my, my type. That sounds about right thank you Jonathan Uh, now what
0: let's start with what not to do right because this tends to be a really big impulse for people once they discover this thing they'll immediately tend to look at the work that they're doing and say huh like am I doing like is this impulse that is so central to me am I actually expressing this in the work that I'm currently doing and if they're not there's very often this impulse to say oh wow I need to just blow everything up. I need to walk away. I need to start over. I need to find something entirely different. And what I'm going to invite you to do is not do that. It is, there may be people for whom that is an intelligent, that is a reasoned step, but generally that's the last step that you want to take, not the first, especially once you're a little bit further into life and you've got responsibilities and there are a lot of things hanging on the fact that you have, you know, your, your job may be sustaining a family in a particular way. It's not so easy to do that. We tend to dramatically overestimate the giddiness and the joy, the elation that we'll feel when we blow things up and we have this freedom and then we dive into something that we absolutely are drawn to and we underestimate the time that it will take to actually get there and the pain of the disruption that will be caused through that process. That doesn't mean that it's wrong for everyone, but it means that in my mind, it's the last thing that you consider doing, not the first What I would consider doing as the first part of the exploration is say, okay, let me look at the work that I'm doing right now, and then do that same analysis. How aligned is what I'm doing with this fundamental impulse for effort? If I'm a maker, how much of my time, how much opportunity do I have to actually immerse myself in a process of creation? And then if you start to see, well, actually, there's a whole bunch of this that is really well aligned, but there's... 30% 30% of the work that is completely misaligned, or maybe there's 50% where you, you just have no opportunity to express this. Then you start to ask the question, how can I reimagine what I'm doing now? How can I you know, do it in different ways? How can I look for ways to try different tasks, use different tools, deepen into different processes that may allow me to express this impulse without having to make these really big disruptive changes and then start to run little experiments. Well, what if I do a little more of this and a little less of this? And what you'll find over time for most people is that you have a lot more ability to do that. And as you start to do that, the way that you feel in your work starts to change. You start to show up differently and people actually start to respond to you differently because your state is persistently different and better and improved and more energized and, and more alive. And a lot of people can actually get a lot closer to the feeling that they imagined by reimagining what they're doing, even doing things that were not squarely within your job description, but they're available to you to actually start doing simply because of the way that it makes you feel. All right, thank you.
1: Well, anything else you want to make sure to share before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things?
0: Just, I think we're in a moment right now where really big questioning has become normalized in a way that has not in generations. There's a lot of judgment if you sort of like we're you know in the, in the your 30s, 40s, and 50s, and you're like, you know what? I, I really want to, I want to think about what got me here and is it the thing that's going to get me there? And maybe I'm going to do some really big reimagining. That kind of questioning was not welcomed socially in a lot of contexts. What's happening in the world right now has shaken people so much and on a scale that that kind of questioning has actually been normalized now. So we have this rare window of opportunity to step into it, to really examine and to not hide it, to be public, to have conversations and discourse and seek help in a way that would have been a lot more difficult just a few years ago. And what I would invite people to do is to not waste this window. All right. Thank you. Well, now
1: could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
0: There's a classic script called, or, or book or poem really, called the Bhagavad Gita. And it's not written in English, it's written in Sanskrit, but one of the translations, there's a line in it that translates roughly to, far better to live your life imperfectly than to live another's life perfectly. And that has always landed really powerfully with me.
1: Uh-huh. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
0: I think I was fascinated for a long time with a bunch of the research around self-regulation and that positioned it as a depletable resource. And what I've been probably equally fascinated by recently is that the emerging, the follow-on research around that shows that actually whether willpower or self-regulation is a depletable resource or not is largely determined by whether you believe it is or not. And that the original research wasn't entirely correct which means that we have a lot more control over our self-control. All right, thank you. And a favorite book? One that comes to mind is an oldie but a goodie. It was originally published as a short story in Life Magazine in 1951. Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. I'm A huge fan of Hemingway's writing because of how much he can convey, how much he can move you with so few words. His efficiency in language is just stunning. And then the story of this this uh, old man, Santiago, it starts as what you would think on the surface is a battle between him and this great fish. But what he's really doing is a deep meditation on how we interact with the things that we see as struggle and how we reframe them as partnership in life. Okay.
1: And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with listeners and others and say, wow, that was good. And they say, uh, Jonathan loved it when you said this.
0: Yeah, there's something that I've actually been talking about recently and I haven't shared it a lot, but I'll share it here with you. It's what I call the principle of maximum sustainable generosity. It's the way that I look at building businesses, but it's also the way that I look at building relationships. It's the way that I look at moving into life, which is basically asking the question, how can I be as generous as humanly possible in the way that I move into the world, the way that I offer things to others, the way that I build relationships and do it in a way that is sustainable over time financially, emotionally, physically, and spiritually.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I want to chew on that. Thank you. And um, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
0: I would point them either to the uh, Good Life Project podcast. And if you want to learn more about the spark types at sparkatype.com and the book Spark is just available to booksellers everywhere.
1: All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, my call to action really bridges
0: off of what I shared earlier about this being a unique moment in time. A lot of people, I think, have not been entirely satisfied with the way that they work. It may be taking care of them financially, maybe giving them a certain amount of security, but life is short. I think we've been all reminded how tender it can be most recently. I got a huge wake up call around that during 9 11 when I was in New York City. And that shifted the way they look at the world the way they look at work and i think we're in a moment right now where there's a similar disruption happening and my invitation would be to not take this feeling not take this questioning and just bury it just stifle it and just keep on keeping on and keep your head down whether you make a bigger change or not it doesn't really matter but take this window as an invitation to discover more about who you are about what fills you up about what empties you out and then use that information to try and make better decisions
1: all right jonathan this has been a treat i, I wish you all the best as you keep on putting your imprints on cool stuff that makes you come alive thanks so much appreciate you having me i really enjoyed that perspective that Jonathan shared with regard to the sparkotypes and whenever you've got a bit of a typology or framework to work with it can spark uh pun intended a new layer of insight and that really helped me figure out a little bit like what is it why is it that I felt frustrated during the course of these work days oh I see a whole lot of it was kind of the opposite of what sparks me okay good to know good to know let's get that outsourcing train in motion. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP703. Hope to catch you next time and peace.